All right. Well, this is Ken Gordon, reporter for the Columbus Dispatch, here with my colleague uh, Kaylee Doyle. And Kaylee and I just uh, finished working on a, a project looking at the mental health of, of children and how they were affected uh, by the pandemic that we hopefully are now getting through. But, you know, it, it was so devastating for, for all of us, obviously. And, and a lot of people have struggled with mental health issues. And Kaylee and I decided to look at this through the lens of, of how it's affected children and we each had a, a different focus to our stories. Kaylee is a uh, focuses on Appalachia and rural Ohio, uh, so that's where she focused her efforts. Um, and I looked at sort of the opposite, which is you know the inner city here in Columbus, particularly in kids who are living in poverty, neighborhoods often plagued by violence, and of course uh, more uh, heavily populated by minorities. So a lot of issues that are you know unique to those populations. So I, you know, I guess just briefly, I would say that in general, the CDC report came out that said there was a spike last year in 2020. They were seeing a spike in mental health related emergency room visits for kids, 24% ages 5 to 11, 31% spike in ages 12 to 17. So there is some data behind this. And in and, and my story, you know, it's sort of exacerbated, as I said, by some of the systemic problems that we already had in the inner cities, kids in poverty, and also kids dealing with racism and violence. So these are the stresses that are on these kids disproportionately to other populations. So, you know, Kaylee and I each talk to uh, experts in the field, people who are dealing with the treatment aspect of this, but also um, some of the children themselves. And, you know, uh, from my perspective, I focused on a a 19-year-old young woman who's just has had a a pretty horrific life um, and uh, already was dealing with violence and uh, broken families and her mother's in prison and drugs and sex trafficking and all the things that you can think of that are, you know, just awful problems in, in a lot of these inner cities. And so in the, she was just actually kind of starting to recover from that. She'd been in counseling, found a good counselor. And uh, then the pandemic hit, which sort of shattered her world. As she said, you know, they're telling me that this is in the air and that the very air was dangerous. And, you know, to someone who's already struggling with a lot of the issues that she was struggling with, with housing insecurity and uh, mental health issues, that was pretty devastating. She actually had to be hospitalized for a while. So she's doing better now. I hope the story ends on a little note of hope. But, um, you know, these are the things that, uh, that, that kids have to deal with. And, and often, you know, with parents either missing or parents dealing with a lot of the issues I just said, the, the violence and the uh, drug addiction or, or whatnot, you know, it's it's really hard to reach some of these kids. So, so that's sort of where I focused my efforts, and I'll let uh, I'll let Kaylee talk about her story. Sure. Well, um, there are a lot of commonalities um, between what Ken and I both wrote about and, and reported heavily on. Just this idea of mental health having a huge stigma, both in communities in Appalachia as well as um, in inner cities in Columbus and in Central Ohio. There's still you know, a large amount of shame associated with asking for help. But there are some unique structural barriers in Southeast and Southern Ohio that folks in cities across the state of Ohio don't necessarily have to deal with. Geographically, people are much more isolated uh, in the region, and they also have a lot less resources to pull from. Schools are, you know, given share a huge brunt of the burden of care, which they don't necessarily have the bandwidth or the resources to deal with. And oftentimes, you know, it's there's a huge kind of cultural bent towards not wanting to ask for help that maybe is a little bit more pronounced um, in the region. But there's also a wealth of uh, relationships 
and folks who, while under-resourced and and with hot, dealing with high turnover rates and burnout in the mental health care industry, um, are really committed uh, to helping out down there. And and I actually spoke with a 17-year-old named Destiny Whiting down in Wellston in, in Jackson County, and she's also been through the ringer and uh, deals with depression and anxiety and uh, as a result of losing both of her parents at a relatively early age, her father to, to suicide and her mother to a battle with pancreatic cancer. Like when my mom got sick, the anxiety attacks happened more. But then when she passed away, it, it just got more severe and it like snowballed into something huge that I hoped I would never get to that point. And she's you know, she lives with her grandmother now. She has two older siblings, a brother and a sister who are roughly like 15 and 20 years older than her. So they, they worry about her, but you know, she's kind of on her own here. And, uh, she also lives in a community that doesn't prioritize mental health. They, for whatever reasons, there there are a variety of them. There's, there's not a lot of emphasis put on people to talk about these things. I mean, she, she says essentially, you know, if we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. They don't want, they just don't want us to talk about it. I mean, we've had a lot of students in our school um, try to take their own lives. And then, of course, if that happens, they have to have a big talk to us about it, which is sad. We should have had the talk before it even happened. I think that is a huge cultural, you know, challenge that she and many other people in uh, the region have to reckon with. And, And I think dealing with those complications, especially for a place that has been devastated by the opioid epidemic, now handling a global pandemic where there's been more restrictions and more things put on people uh, and being told that they can't live their life normally. It's, it's been a, you know, it's got compounding trauma for, for a lot of folks down there. I realize that I'm not the only one who struggles with it. And a lot of kids look down on themselves because of it, because of the, the way that they handle things. And I realize that it's completely normal and it's not a bad thing. As society puts it into our heads how bad of a thing it is, it's something that needs to be addressed and talked about more than hidden and like swept under the rug. And so I would, you know, I would say it's 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 been challenging, um, but we're hopeful that the, the work that Ken and I have done uh, shines, you know, a brighter light on what's going on right now and, and helps break down, you know, some of these more complicated nuances of, of how the mental health care system works, how money is funded by the state and what opportunities and what ways we can proceed forward to to help these kids out and gives people a better sense of of where we're going. Yeah, I would agree with Kaylee. I just think that, you know, we have devoted a lot of time and effort to this issue. You know, it's something that uh, in the past has not, as Kaylee said, has not been talked about enough. I think I think as a society now, hopefully, we're at a point where we're understanding this. And if one good thing has come out of the pandemic is that it's pointed up, these issues have been there all along and, and it's okay to talk about them. And we're doing that now. So, um, you know, and, and as our guest, Robin Harris, talks about, some of these effects may still yet to be seen. I mean, these are not going to end just because the pandemic is waning. I mean, these will be issues that lag, as, as mental health issues often do. They come up later and resurface at the you know, months later, years later. So we just want to raise the awareness. We hope these stories uh, and this podcast raise the awareness and, uh, and hopefully focus, uh, you know, some, some attention to these efforts uh, by p- people like Robin and others that are that are out there on the front lines trying to help kids. So that's what we hope comes out of this. Absolutely. Robin, do you mind just saying, so we have here, what your position is and maybe tell us a little bit about the importance of what an Adam H. Board does for various counties. I know there's 50 total of them in the state, but just how that 
um, sort of impacts or affects uh, the mental health of children just kind of more broadly throughout Ohio? Sure. So I'm executive director of the Adam H. Board for Gallia, Jackson, and Meigs counties. And, um, of course, our role in, is uh, to plan, fund, and monitor behavioral health services uh, for our board area as set by the guidelines, of course, of the legislature, the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, and then uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at the federal level. The strength of Adam H. Boards and the strength of the way Ohio does behavioral health is that having the board system allows us to interpret, if you will, (laughs) funnel uh, the funding and the mandates and the goals and objectives in in such a way that we are able to um, carry those things out in a culturally appropriate manner. So if you were to talk to each of the 50 Adam H. boards in the state, you would find uh, vast differences in the way programs are carried out uh, just because we exist in with cultural factors. We exist with uh, varying socioeconomic factors and varying relationships in the way communities uh, serve people. So we are serving, of course, from birth to the grave, so to speak. Uh, So we have, of course, a robust adult system as well as the kids' system. But the, the role that we play here, if I were to take the three counties that I'm serving, uh, we, of course, are in the heart of Appalachia and have some very difficult uh, socioeconomic factors that we have to deal with. And it results in us not having local dollars, uh, local tax dollars devoted to behavioral health. So we have to work strictly within state and federal uh, guidelines and funding streams and we bring those programs here and then we take a look at the needs of our communities and contract for services in a way that meets the guidelines that we must meet as well as serving the needs of the culture. And we do that by building strong relationships with school districts, uh, with uh, child welfare, with health departments, with the local health care system. Um, with uh, justice services, whether it's juvenile or adult, uh, with law enforcement. We have very close relationships with all of those. And we serve the most difficult to serve people by teaming in that way. Uh, None of us are very strongly resourced, but we have very, very strong relationships that we rely on to do that. Does that answer your question? Yeah. And like I mentioned in my email, Ken and I have both been, obviously, you know, the story that I've been working on for too many months at this point. Ken's been doing sort of a similar, you know, deep dive into how mental health in in kids in urban areas, specifically in central Ohio and Columbus, have been impacted by COVID, by all the things that we've, we've sort of discussed in addiction and opioid epidemic and 
how different resources are managed and used by the mental health care system in urban areas. Mm -hmm. And the reason we wanted to talk to you is because I know you've you've had experience working for the state, you know, since the, the 90s, and you've kind of seen the changes in the various gubernatorial administrations over the last 25, 30 years. And I thought maybe we could start there a little bit, but just more broadly, how, you know, mental health care has changed in the state of Ohio, especially as it relates to kids over the last, you know, few decades. You know, I have to say that sitting where I am now, I'm very grateful for the current administration. I believe that Governor DeWine and his cabinet leaders are very committed to the needs of kids and families and especially to the needs of kids in their own communities. And so we've seen some progress. COVID has made it difficult. You know, it's almost like we took a break for a year, but I think um, we're progressing nicely toward a refreshing of looking at kids in a multi-system kind of way. If, if I look back, I can go back to the administration of George Voinovich, who began Ohio Family and Children First and really started the movement toward looking at kids as a whole and breaking down the silos that existed between all the child-serving systems. And from then to now, it's been quite a journey. You know, times when we felt a lot of support in that arena and other times when that dwindled and other things took precedent. But I'm I'm gratified to see where we are going now. So I guess maybe if we could sort of step back and frame this a little bit to, you know, how the effects that COVID has had on the mental health of children. I mean, I know there are some national stats, um, you know, about more mental health visits and emergency room visits related to mental health. But I, I guess maybe if you could talk about what, you, what you're seeing and hearing in terms of, of how the pandemic, it's obviously affected everyone, but, but specifically to, uh, to kids' uh, mental health. I think, you know, even in the, the rather small area where I am working, you know, three rural counties, we have nine school districts in the three counties. And um, it has varied. Uh, according to the way the school district managed, uh, you know, all of the, the guidelines that they had to follow. So in the districts where the kids were attending five days per week, we had some who were doing that. Um, we were better able to keep our people in close contact with the kids. In the districts that, you know, chose some blend of virtual learning we saw a troubling tendency for kids who were struggling more, <clears throat> excuse me, behaviorally to choose the virtual option. And in doing that, many times they dropped off the radar, even, uh, even within the behavioral health system. And that was somewhat troubling. Some kids thrived with virtual opportunities to see their counselors or their caseworkers and did very well with that. But we did have uh, numbers of kids who just disappeared. And varying degrees of success in reestablishing those contacts. In counties where the juvenile court took an active role, children's services took an active role, and we, we kind of teamed on this thing, we were able to make uh, contact with families and stay in close touch. In other cases where interpretation of uh, rules around COVID 
caused everyone to go virtual, including probation officers and children's services caseworkers. We, we've struggled more. And we are just seeing some of those kids emerge now. But to say that we've seen an increase in emergency room visits, we have not. We've not seen an increase in uh, kids presenting an acute crisis, needing hospitalization. Uh, you know, so far, it's it's still rather quiet. Robin, I'm I'm wondering if part of the reason that there hasn't been necessarily a spike in in those statistics is due to you know a lot of the the forgotten group of kids who are suffering they usually it's these kids who live these kind of quiet lives of desperation and and i know that that trauma has only been compounded particularly in in southeast ohio and and i know throughout the whole state of ohio with the opioid epidemic and kids having family members or or friends afflicted by that and now with covid i'm wondering if you if you think we'll see the compound of that trauma play out you know in a few years from now, like several months from now, is, is the reason maybe that people are, haven't even had a chance to really process? You know, that, Kaylee, that's an interesting question because I think that's what we are trying to anticipate now. Um, we do realize that uh, lack of broadband, lack of ability to make meaningful contact with kids is a especially difficult for the kids who are suffering, you know, from depression, those who have uh, family issues that are particularly difficult. Um, We've we've attempted to stay in touch with those kids through uh, sending our people out to the food distribution sites, uh, just going to the homes. You know, we've had people going to homes. But I think... um, we still, well, I, I, I think we will see kids uh, coming back into the school systems this fall with varying degrees of some sort of a, a post-traumatic reaction uh, to everything that's gone on. We have, um, and when I say we, I have and my assistant director, we've made a point this spring of meeting individually with each of our nine school districts to plan how we will embed behavioral health uh, services inside school buildings in an even more intensive way than we have in the past. It's really interesting because I've actually heard some folks talk about some kids uh, weren't or aren't really looking forward to returning to school if they had anxieties or mm-hmm. they, they were maybe being, you know, bullied or, um, you know, had issues in, in physical schools uh, situations before. They might actually prefer to, uh, to stick with the virtual option. So that's interesting to hear that, how it might play. Yeah. Out, you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, I think, I think only time will tell. Uh, I have some concerns about kids who, whose difficulties uh, are exacerbated at school for a variety of reasons. If the family is struggling in other ways, I, I wonder about what their experience of education has been this year and, you know, how they will be able to reenter the school system. But we've done a lot of training uh, with our school districts on trauma-informed care and using trauma-informed approaches. So, we're taking this time during the summer to really develop close 
networking and teaming around how we will identify and respond to kids in the school buildings this fall. You know, the obvious differences between the stories that Ken and I have written, which is that the cultural, the socioeconomic, and the geographical barriers in Southeast, Southern, and and Appalachian, Ohio are so significantly different than what kids are experiencing in Columbus and in Cleveland, Cincinnati, Toledo, in the more suburban, urban areas of the state. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why there's such a contrast, why those differences. And I know that you and I have spoken about those cultural factors before, but maybe just touch on a little bit again. Yeah, um, you're touching on one of my favorite topics (laughs) as far as why we called you. I feel um, (laughs) I view my role as an Adam Board director to represent our area effectively in Columbus or in Washington, D.C., in a way that creates a realistic picture uh, of who we are. There's much written about what's wrong in Appalachia. There's much written uh, about the difficulties. And I find myself trying to paint a picture that's somewhere between Andy Griffith's Mayberry and Hillbilly Elegy. (laughs) (laughs) That's a wide range there to cover. (laughs) It it certainly is. But, you know, we we don't quite have the charm of Mayberry. (laughs) But I'm not a fan of Hillbilly Elegy, so... (laughs) I find that we we are not often given enough credit for the professional expertise that exists here and the educational opportunities that allow us to do a, a very good job of serving people. I'm very proud of the work that's done, not just in behavioral health, but in a number of other professions in the way we are able to garner expertise and use the strengths of our culture to serve people. And, and when I say the strengths, that that lies in our ability to work almost independently from outside support sometimes, but to do it in a cooperative way. We, we understand that when we're looking at a child and family who are really struggling, that they belong to all of us. I don't have to deal with factors like, well, you know, this child belongs to the DD system or this child belongs to juvenile justice or, you know, this is a school problem. We know one another on on first name basis. We often sit together at ball games and and know one another's families. And so if my juvenile judge is having a problem serving a child and family, I see it as my job to come in and offer the supports that he needs to work with that family. And we often find ourselves talking formally and informally about those things. Now, do we have a lack of resources? Absolutely. Explaining to people why we do not have uh, a behavioral health tax levy is, is always an interesting discussion. And although I would love to have a levy, I would love to have that kind of financial support at the local level. I also have a great deal of respect for the cultural factors that cause people to be resistant at the idea and have done significant research even back to uh, where the people of this region originated. And and, uh, many people who settled in the Appalachian region came from the Scottish Highlands. 
And uh, if you take that all the way back to kind of a tribal <laughs> sort of mindset and a mindset where people lived in isolated pockets of land that belonged to them, there's a great deal of value attached in our culture to ownership of land and a deep-seated belief that the government should not be taxing that. (laughs) Now, people are willing, more willing to pay property taxes for school districts to a certain extent, for senior services uh, and health departments. But when you get into behavioral health, of course, there are all the stigma issues that go with that. And a belief uh, still something that we are are struggling against here is still a, a deep-seated belief that people should be helping themselves and that some behavioral health issues are a choice. So we have some work to do in this area before we can look seriously at asking the public to pass a tax levy for behavioral health. So being resource poor, especially financially, has its drawbacks. I mean, there are things, there are uh, sophisticated measures that we are not able to do that I see my counterparts in more urban areas moving forward. But on the other hand, it has caused us to dig deep, I guess, to find the resources here and to know how to meet needs in very creative ways. And to bring whatever uh, small amount of funding I may have, I can sit down with my community partners and we don't build barriers. We look at our needs and we are very adept at figuring out how to make your money join with my money so that we can get the job done. Because at the end of the day, the commitment is to the child and family. It's really interesting, Robin. You were talking about uh, the, the Mayberry part of that, I think, was uh, sitting down at the ball game with the judge or the teacher and discussing these issues. <laughs> That's, that sounds like yeah. a small town <laughs> I grew up in where I was always upset that I could never get away with anything because everyone knew each other's parents. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Probably the only thing that kept me on the straight and narrow. I, I wanted to ask just because, as Kaylee said, that I think one common area between our stories, uh, whether it's inner city or, or rural, is the poverty factor. And I just wondered, yes. um, and, and I know, you know, it's, it's a broadband issue. A lot of times services, whether it's educational or mental health with telehealth there in Appalachia, in, in the inner city, it's often just lack of resources to pay for <laughs> internet. It's not lack of availability, but yes. I, I wondered if you could speak to maybe, um, how poverty has really affected both, both sort of access to treatment and, and maybe affects. You know, we deal with, uh, families who poverty goes back several generations. And one thing when we are working with training our workforce, we're careful that we don't develop an idea or put forth an idea that just because I was born and raised here, I understand. Because what we've had to learn is that there are basic survival skills to living in poverty. And things that if we have not, if I have not experienced poverty, I may not understand some of the behaviors. And I can stand back in judgment and find something to be healthy or unhealthy in the way a family functions that if I take one step further back and really examine how I'm responding to that, 
and look at some of the research literature around the culture of poverty, then I began to frame up things that I would have viewed as deficits in a family and and reframe those as strengths. But I also believe that we have to be so mindful of the factors that are affecting a parent's ability to work with us when we are working with a child. Uh, If we aren't careful, we're, we're very quick to say that a parent is not being cooperative or they are not interested or, you know, this is poor parenting. And I still cringe when I get a request for parenting classes for people because when we sit down and we build a relationship with someone, we find that sometimes what we have is just a tired, overwhelmed parent that just figuring out how to keep lights turned on or heat turned on or food and then deal with whatever behavior, you know, emotional factors may be going on in the family. That many times our first step needs to be meeting those needs. If we go clear back to Maslow's hierarchy, let's give this mom some relief before we ask her to start taking part in a treatment plan or taking initiatives in new ways to manage behavior when she's already exhausted and overwhelmed. Here, we also, I think where we would be different from an urban setting is is we have a great deal of social isolation with some of the families that we work with. But I shouldn't, it's, it's social isolation. It's also, I, I actually meant to say geographic isolation. There are still a great number of people living in what we call hills and hollers, but back township roads that are nothing but rutted dirt roads and living in the the isolation of that. And sometimes the family prefers that. Sometimes I think they see us as bringing burdens to them rather than assistance. And we always, always, always stress with our people to be mindful and respectful of how this family chooses to live and to come alongside them in a way that builds upon their strengths or even to go back one step on that helps them see what their strengths are. Sometimes all we do, if we aren't careful, our helping just points out to a family that they are failing. And instead, we try to go in and and help them see what they're doing right first with a belief that most of the families we're dealing with want to do the best for their children. They do have dreams for their children. They do value, you know, great goals for their children. But first, we have to help them be able to see that there are possibilities and possibilities exist even here. Robin, I just want to kind of wrap up here by asking to end on a little bit more of an, an uplifting note here. And, and I know, obviously, in your industry, the burnout is high. There are high turnover rates. I know that specifically affects Southeast and, and Southern Ohio as well. But what's something mm-hmm. that gives you hope in your field and, and something that you take with you, especially after the the insane year that we've just had? Is is there something that, that <laughs> keeps you keeps you going and, and drives you forward and, and maybe something that you also encourage your coworkers to put their faith in as well? Even after all these years, and I've told you, Kaylee, that I've been doing this a long time, but even after all these years, I still believe in the innate goodness and resilience of people. 
And when people are struggling, the best thing we can do is help them see their potential and help them see how strong they really are and help them see who is around them to help. If I were to say why I stay in Appalachia, why I have chosen to spend my entire career here, it's because of people. And it's because people here are good. People here still want to help. Sometimes we are discouraged and sometimes we feel overwhelmed. But I still know that I can always, always find somebody willing to reach out when we are putting a plan together for a child and family. And that's why I keep doing it. Well, we thank you that you do. I'd like to say that. You guys don't get enough thanks, I think, the uh, frontline people uh, working in these fields. So, Thank you so much for everything that you do and for, for bearing uh, with me again to talk even more about this. I, we really appreciate it. And, um, you know, Kayla, you are a joy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thank you for, for being interested because it, it does help us. It helps us as we can reach outside our area, reach outside ourselves, and make connections to build upon our strengths. So I appreciate your interest. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Well, you're so welcome. Have a good rest of your day, Robin. Thank you, and you as well. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.